This is episode 21. You're listening to the All Hazards Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to give you exclusive access to emergency managers who've been on the front lines of some of the nation's most difficult challenges. Where we have candid conversations about the challenges facing all emergency managers, no matter how big or small the community. Here's your host, Sean Boyd. One of the often underappreciated and misunderstood roles during a disaster is that of the external affairs officer or public information officer. Their role is critical to giving important, relevant, and accurate information to the public during times of crisis, and of course, making sure they're not sending mixed messages. In this episode of the All Hazards Podcast, we make a visit to Oakland, California, to the FEMA Region 9 offices, where we sit down with external affairs officer Kelly Hudson. She was a relatively newcomer to emergency management when Hurricane Katrina hit. So how did she even begin to wrap her head around that one when she got on scene? She'll talk about that. She'll also talk about her experiences of working other disasters, including the Deepwater Horizon BP oil spill, the Joplin tornadoes, and Hurricane Irene. Well, she'll talk about all that and more right now. So we have a very uh, unique episode of the All Hazards Podcast today. I'm sitting side by side with my colleague, Rob Mayberry. Say hello, Rob. Good morning, Sean. Beautiful day out here. Yeah, we're also sitting here with Kelly Hudson, who is external affairs officer with FEMA Region 9. Good morning, Kelly. Good morning to you both. This is actually my first time, our first time. You've never been out here, Rob, right? I have not. Yeah. So this is our first time out here to the Region 9 headquarters. Uh, Thanks again for having us out here. Um... How did you get involved with FEMA? How long have you been working for FEMA? I've been with FEMA for 12 years. 12 years? 12 years. uh, 10 years here in uh, Region 9 at the Oakland office here. Um, But prior to that, I was a television news reporter and producer for about 20 years. Really? Yeah. What markets did you work in? Um, Primarily the Midwest, um, Illinois, uh, Missouri. Jefferson City, Missouri, where I started as an intern at the CBS affiliate there, and uh, stayed with CBS affiliates uh, for most, for all of my career. Ended up in Columbus, Ohio for 10 years where I ran an investigative, uh, did some investigative reporting, and was the education and schools, um, set up a beat, and was that reporter and producer. You and I also come from the same kind of background. I was in television news for 20 years. Okay. You were in television news for quite a long time. Yes. Rob Mayberry, not so much, but that's no, okay. No, We're not going to hold it against you. More of a marketing, branding, healthcare background. So. There you go. Okay. Good. All right. So Very well, well-rounded. Yeah. That's okay. the way we work things at Cal yes. OES. Well-rounded. Yes. Nice, nice. They feed us well, because as you can see, I'm <laughs> well-rounded. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way, but uh, <laughs> I did for me. Um, so, so how did you get involved with the emergency services world? Well, actually, I was um, working as a producer and uh, reporter for uh, the PBS affiliate in New York City at the time as a freelancer. I left Ohio and went on to uh, just expand my experience and was enjoying it, but not so much New York City. So I was looking for some other opportunities, not wanting to go back to local news, but wanting to continue with um, 
my communication skills that I had honed and uh, my love of storytelling. And a friend of mine who worked for FEMA as a public information officer of a service at the time said, why don't you sign up and come into the world of emergency management? It also offered that same sense of urgency. Yeah. You know, when you're in the newsroom, that adrenaline you know, rush. as you know, Sean, yeah, <laughs> and you're on deadline every day, yeah. right? You're going to be on the air live every day. There are expectations each and every day before you leave that newsroom. And so I was looking for that same place. I didn't want to just go sit behind a desk. I thought that um, I would be bored very quickly mm -hmm. and that I operated best in that room of uh, deadlines mm -hmm. and get it done now. Yeah. There is a certain uh, rush that you miss, but you don't always miss it. Yeah. At least I don't. No, but with the emergency, I mean, listen, I've done 16 um, – Events that were declared uh, presidential disasters. Big ones, too. In the, big ones. I mean, they're big ones if they rise to that level mm -hmm. of a presidential disaster in a 12-year period. So, um, yeah, you did that adrenaline rush. I mean, particularly with FEMA, you know, once it rises to the level of the federal support, then we really have to rally our troops and get in there because our goal is to help that survivor and help them as quickly as possible. So coming from an external affairs background now with FEMA and looking, let's say, at uh, Katrina, because you did respond to Katrina. Yes. Right. When Katrina hit and you were dispatched, what was the time frame and what was your mandate? That was my third event, my third disaster. My first one was Hurricane Ivan. I was in Alabama, and then I moved to a small flooding event in New Jersey, and I'm sitting at my sister's home in Chicago visiting family, and I get the call to deploy for Hurricane Katrina. And prior to getting my call, of course, you're watching it all unfold on television. Right. And you're wondering, I'm wondering, you know, what, am I, what have I really gotten myself into? This is really the world of emergency management. And so, um, you know, deployed um, to Florida, I believe, first, where we got some training and got acclimated and then moved out into finally uh, what was Jefferson Parish, which was right there below uh, the, the bridge where we know now there was, you know, some shootings and, you know, a lot of drama was taking place yeah. up there. People were in panic and they were stressed. Ironically, I was sitting in um, down with the Jefferson Parish government at one of those big park band shelters with 300 firefighters from Menlo Park, California. Oh. So a little bit of a premonition, if you yeah, will. A little bit. Uh, those firefighters were brought in to do some um, community relations work. And so we were, all th if you can imagine, one of those big band uh, park shelters with cots and 300 firefighters snoring through the night and about five women uh, in there. Okay. The, the one thing I will tell you is that we always ate good yeah. and the bathrooms were always clean. <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those guys were on it. But that was really my introduction. Mm. Um, we were um, also couldn't leave that compound without protection. Um, we had um, armed guards, if you will, that were detailed to us. It was a very dangerous situation. Yeah. And so it really began to test uh, my ability to communicate in a different way. I was used to being with a photographer on the other side getting the story. Now my job was to tell the story of how uh, 
emergency managers were there to assist, how they worked to assist, and what, peop- what actions people needed to take to get that assistance and, and to begin to turn their lives around. So a very important mandate, a very important mission or role that you had as a communications professional to get those important messages out. What were some of your top concerns then? Not only for yourself, you said there was a safety issue, but in addition to that, a lot of those people, there wasn't power. When you got there, had the power been restored? Did people have power? Were they able to listen to a radio or check email, whatever that case may be. How were you getting that message out, and what were the challenges? Well, I was very fortunate that um, although there was a lot of conflict between the the federal folks who were there to support and the locals, you know, we were constantly working to build trust and build those relationships uh, because it was just a lot of chaos, and there were a lot of unknowns. And um, I think the biggest challenge was... Um, a, are people listening? And what, you know, what more can we do? Because once you've put out your talking points, if you will, if, you know, register and how you might see uh, urban search and rescue teams in your community, um, you, there's no way to really follow up. We're not having community meetings yet. We're not, you know, you're just pushing information out. This is still early on. This is still early Mm -hmm. on. This is still early on. Um, there was a radio station, and in fact, the emergency, I was with the EOC in Jefferson Parish, and so they, every day, were on the air uh, putting information out. And because we were able to build some relationship, they asked me to come on and to deliver um, our FEMA, the federal family's information at that time. So I was really in, I think, a unique situation where I was able to go in every day and share that information. Now, I will also say it was probably my biggest lesson as well, new to this whole world of emergency management, that I would get these uh, talking points and then I would go on the air. But I didn't always have that connection back to my base camp where FEMA headquarters and the other, you know, the central unit of the PIOs were. And sometimes I got ahead of that leadership. Even though those talking points were approved, you know, there's still a strategy that needs to be executed so everyone's on the same page. So early on, I learned some lessons about making sure that obviously the talking points are approved, and that wasn't a problem, but that we are synced and together and on one page and we're not ahead of each other in getting that messaging out because that that creates a risk of confusing the public. It creates more of a risk of information overload because everyone is dumping information out to that survivor who's just trying to get a grip on the fact that their home is no longer there, right? All of their life's possessions are gone. Mm-hmm. And, and Kelly, you know, Katrina is the disaster of disasters, one of those um, disasters, disasters that we learned a lot of lessons from. Yes. And um, I, I'm just curious, um, you know, some, maybe some thought that FEMA or the federal government was coming in a little too late than they should have been. Um, did you get um, backlash from some of the uh, people that were down in the disaster area? And how did you handle deal with that? I think, I don't know that we got, I don't remember getting a lot of backlash at my level, 
Right. Um, I I remember being welcomed into that facility. Um, I know that there was backlash happening across that area uh, because that had been our largest event, I believe, as a country and mm -hmm. really tested our emergency management system and showed where the gaps were. Uh, but I don't remember walking away from that um, feeling uh, any animosity um, at all. I think that as a reporter, uh, I had a unique set of skills that I was trained in being able to get information that I needed for a story, right? It, it takes some skills, as you know. And empathy. Um, Sean. Yeah, and empathy mm -hmm. and good listening skills. You know, I tried to really listen to what their concerns were and then come back with some solutions or information that could help them move along their process. And I think by doing that, it allows you then to have an opportunity to get your information out over channels um, that they had made available to me. So th I think that's really where my journalism skills came into play and just my people skills. I mean, you've got to um, be a giver as well as a receiver. And I found that works also, I'm sure you both can attest, in emergency management. Uh, you've got to be able to uh, listen to what the survivor is, have empathy, know where they're at in that uh, response and recovery process because we all, it's kind of like grieving. There's several stages to grieving. Well, as that survivor is working through that process, there are stages that uh, allow them to hear information, discard information. And as public information officers, we've got to be attuned to that. We've got to know when to repeat a message, even though we may have said it just a day ago, because now the survivor is much more ready to receive it. Good point, good point. So you're on the ground now, and you're, you're working through the things that you need to do, but you also have a lot on your mind when you first arrive. When you first arrive on scene, whether it's Katrina or any other disaster, what do you do mentally the minute you set foot into the zone where you need to be, um, do you have like a mental checklist in terms of how you begin to operate? Where do you even begin? How do you start? So in other words, if there are public information officers who are going to be working future disasters or external affairs or whatever the title may be, what do you recommend to them in terms of getting their thoughts and organization together to even begin to work a situation like that? Sure. I think some of the big ones for me, uh, moving beyond Katrina, you know, uh, the 2007 and 8 wildfires right here, you know, in, in Southern California, um, Deepwater Horizon oil spill, I let us, there was no federal declaration there, but um, under the DHS, DHS secretary at the time, a small community relations team went in to support the BP operation, uh, the Joplin tornadoes, um, Hurricane Irene um, up in New Hampshire, that's where our team was. I think that, you know, once I get that deployment order, I begin to think about um, A, and this is very important for a public information officer when you're going into these large events, is you've got to make sure that you have a place that you can find your kind of peace of mind. You've got to kind of put your mindset 
in, okay, I'm going into austere conditions. Let me make sure I've got my, the personal equipment that I need. You know, don't rush into throwing a bunch of stuff in your bag and getting out that door because once you're out the door, you're out the door. There may not be that chance. So I do my checklist of what gear am I going to need? Always making sure that, um, I'm going to have a good water supply when I get there. I learned you know, being hydrated is crucial to being able to make your way through long days. Having those snacks that are non-perishable uh, that you might have to turn to until things settle down and you can actually get into a restaurant or into a working grocery store. You need to be able to take care of yourself before You've you can take, to care take care of care, others. Absolutely. You have to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. And then I begin to think about... Um, if I'm the assigned external affairs officer, in which in these scenarios I was, or if I'm the lead, I'm thinking about what kind of team members I need to execute this particular mission. Um, we use the ESF-15 standard operating procedure that was uh, approved by the Department of Homeland Security that really lays out, it's a blueprint of who we're going to need to help best communicate the federal message from congressional, sometimes intergovernmental that's going to deal with uh, tribal leaders or mayors. Uh, the news desk is crucial. What are my PIOs going to be like? Where do I need to get them in? What areas do they need to be boots on the ground to really be the face of this messaging campaign? So you have to start thinking about the big picture. Then I think the other thing I think about is who is my counterpart? I always try to make it a point, if I can do it beforehand, um, to reach out to the state public information officer. They are ground central. Th this is their community. This is their folks. So I do try to reach out and to say, hey, I'm en route. I'm going to be bringing a team with me that can support not just the federal message, but create a space uh, where other PIOs, such as yourself, can work. So be you're not alone and you were, we're headed your way to help you out. I think that's really important, again, in building relationships, bridging any gaps that might be there. I mean, the truth is the communicators are, are really, it's a heavy burden and a big responsibility, not just to the survivors, but to your counterparts um, and making sure that we can keep a cohesiveness and we don't become part of the problem. You know, you, you've got to talk through it. It's not easy um, because you've got, then, of course, you've got, you know, the mission hanging over on getting the job done and all that goes into that. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the communications folks um, carry an extra little responsibility card in kind of keeping things fluid mm -hmm. through good communication. Absolutely. And communication uh, is not easy good communication. It takes work, yes. as anyone who has been in any kind of personal relationship <laughs> can attest. Absolutely. It, it, and it, we all have. We all have, man. <laughs> so that, that's, that really is great advice, Kelly. So for yeah. the PIOs out there that are listening. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing too, Rob, when you have to deal with you know us being on a state level, you can imagine what uh, the PIOs at the county level or the local township level uh, think when we come rolling into town, what do people, right. how do they look at you, FEMA, as you come rolling into town? <laughs> it's like you're, you're on my block now, I right? Know. They, they, I, you know, I, so I, do they, have you ever gotten that misunderstanding or has there ever been that big hurdle to explain to them and make them understand that, yeah, we're federal, but we're here to help you 
and then you know working together as opposed to working separately in different silos. Sure, sure. Um, I think Hurricane, excuse me, Hurricane Irene uh, was my biggest challenge with that in 2011. Uh, we had gone in ahead of the storm, and um, but from the beginning, um, the state we were in, in New Hampshire um, just didn't understand what we did, how we did it, and why there had to be so many of us. Mm. You know, particularly in states that are robust and can get the job done, um, it can be a little challenging. Uh, when you know the federal family comes in because there's so many components and um, I remember one particular meeting where yeah I had to literally lay out and make the case for why there was a public uh, information operation for the federal side and that we weren't there to um, overshadow their message but that there had to be a tandem message going out. Otherwise, their citizens were not going to do, be able to take advantage of the federal resources that had been made, made available to them from the president. And while we're spending that time making the case, of course, the mission is not our focus. And so it does take a level, I say, uh, uh, for public information officers, you've got to really have courage. You've got to have courage to, courage and um, confidence. Mm. And I don't mean that in a way of egotistical, but you have got to have confidence that you know your programs, you know what you can deliver, you've got to know wh who your staff are, you've got to know your messaging, you've got to have your knowledge base down. And then you've got to have the courage to speak about it and to defend it. Because at the federal level, the president has said, I need this organization to go in and to assist that state. And it takes courage to do that. Yes, indeed. Uh, it takes courage. But it can be done. And I think we saw a beautiful example. We got past it in Irene. And at the end of it, uh, the state PIO was with me every day. Mm -hmm. uh, initially, that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. And by the end, as we moved forward and did our job, they began to see the benefit. That's the other piece. Even if you haven't turned that corner yet with your counterpart, you've got to execute, execute your plan and your mission. Do it, do it to the best of your ability, and when people see the benefit, that's when they begin to come around. But if you can't execute your job and you're making mistakes, then you're giving them fuel for, for not wanting you to be at the table. So that the PIO has got to come fully prepared. You've mentioned a number of incidents that, that you've been on in different parts of the country. Um, being here at FEMA Region 9, uh, can you be deplored, deployed to any uh, area in the, in the nation? Or? Yes, anywhere that um, if there's a request from FEMA headquarters or our regional, our leadership here, we can be sent anywhere. So I mentioned um, when I got here in 2006, barely put my bags down in my new place, and boom, the fires of 2007. You're thrown right in there, down in Pasadena. We were Many of us were down there together for months. I think I was down there for a year. Wow. And then 2008 turned around, and unfortunately we had another big fire. So 
um, down there. But following that, um, I have been on the road. We've been fortunate in California. We haven't had a lot of large events like we see in the other rest of the country with tornadoes and hurricanes. You know, we move forward to, you know, the 2015 wildfires that rose to the level of a presidential event, right? So the other events have been pretty much, you know, out of out of this Region 9 area, and we just go where we're needed. I think I'm very fortunate to be in Region 9 uh, as my California California Office of Emergency Services counterparts, very prepared um, region. I think we sync very well. We exercise together well. We communicate um, well. So I think when you know when it hits the fan, we're ready uh, to move out. Nothing's perfect, but uh, we strive for that. And I think that's uh, really important. Which I I'm I'm really you know thankful for this opportunity to, to speak on your podcast because I think um, the public needs to know that there's some unity as well at that level. There's nothing worse to see or to become aware of infighting that can um, detract from what's in our hearts to deliver those services um, to the survivor, right? Yeah. So I think as PIOs, that's another one of our responsibilities. But as you said, yeah, deployed anywhere. I've been to the Pu'u'o'o lava flow. You know, whoever thought I'd be standing, uh, say you that know, Pu'u'o'o <laughs> is, uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the 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 lava event on uh, the Big Island of Hawaii yeah. that caused a lot of angst in 2014 uh, for communities on the Big Island, and um, there I was standing, you know, maybe five feet away from some very slow moving lava. I will add, I yeah. wouldn't be that crazy yeah, yeah. to be right <laughs> up on it. You feel but, it. You feel the heat. Oh, the heat. 2000. Yeah, what? Yeah. Degrees Fahrenheit, and it's just it's molten it, rock. It's molten rock. Jeez. And it, we, we watched a house, wood frame house, no one was there, of course, and within 20 seconds of that lava hitting the under porch, it was gone, mm. Mm-mm-mm. you know, right before your very eyes. So it's eye opening. Yeah, it's eye opening, <laughs> and it's like, okay, now what? Yeah, Mother Nature's <laughs> upset. Okay, she's upset. Um, but yes, you we can be deployed anywhere. Well, um, and I've had the opportunity as, as well as Sean to work with you on a a few disasters here in the state of California and I, I, I speak for Sean when when you walk into the room when the federal wa- government walks into the room and it, you're there Kelly it's always reassuring to know who the personalities we're going to be um, working with yes and just being able to know you and, and work with you in the past there is some reassurance and some comfort being comfortable of having that knowing who we're going to be working with so. sure yeah. And and I think here particularly, I mean, we know they always say it's not um, if but when. Right. Uh, we have our earthquake. I think that's going to be vital. Absolutely. Because we're all going to be somewhat, you know, excuse the pun, rattled mm-hmm. to our core. And we're going to have to, those of us who can, you know, come together and begin to communicate with our community about what to do. Yeah. I want to go back a little bit. You talked about being deployed to places ar- around the country. Deepwater Horizon just had a movie yes. made about it. Have you seen it? I did see it. Uh, I had think? to see it. Uh-huh. What yeah, did you I think? I had to see it. Uh, I, th- I thought, you know, it's Hollywood has its moments. Sure. Um, but I thought it was, it was, it, it helped me to understand 
what I was dealing with back at the BP Education really? Center uh, in Homa in terms of what had really happened out there in mm. the Gulf. Um, and I think, as we all know, you know, the politics that come to play in, in all decisions that can unfortunately sometimes lead to great events and tragedies and leadership decisions. It was a great lesson, I think, on leadership. And, that's, and that was going to be uh, my next yeah, question. On what leadership. Did you, what did you learn after when you had time to step back, take a look at how things went there? Uh, Deepwater Horizon, the big disaster that everybody knows about now because of the movie. What were some of the lessons that you learned from that event? Ooh, okay, um, let's start with leadership. Yeah, um, that was another big one because uh, FEMA, of course, was not, because this was a privately owned company, BP Oil Spill, um, private sector, uh, did not, the president did not declare a disaster because that would have meant federal taxes would have paid for much of the cleanup and the resources, and BP was insured. And so that's the first piece of it that we are here not in uh, in that official capacity. BP was doing some com similar to what we at the time had was community relations specialists. And um, DHS secretary at the time, Janet Napolitano, had asked FEMA to send in a small CR team to supplement what they were doing. Well, mm. that was not quite received well that uh. the, the federal folks were there. Uh, the Coast Guard, of course, was in charge um, because it was, on, it was maritime. Um, but again, you, you have to get the mission. I had to make sure I fully understood the mission. This is kind of coming off of the heels of, you know, Louisiana, maybe not so much wanting FEMA folks in the mist. Um, I remember being on a call with a lot of the parish presidents to understand why we were going to be there, to explain to them the mission and the program. And I felt that it was key as the leader of this team that I knew what I was talking about, first of all, and then we could exactly to the best of our ability deliver on that because eyes were watching. Any small move could, you know, an error, a mistake, um, Magnified. Magnify the mm -hmm. problem. And so, um, yeah, so I just needed to make sure I understood the mission. We had the CR team. We got in there. I'm bringing my ESF-15 that is still not widely accepted amongst all federal partners. And so there was that mm. piece to share and let them know what, you know, the kind of the blueprint I was using. You guys literally go by the book. Yeah, we do. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's, of course, it's always flexible. It's scalable, it's flexible, and all of those things. But, gosh, I just find it's a tremendous framework so that we can all be working off of the same page. Mm -hmm. So were there, there were just great opportunities to, uh, as a leader of that team, to talk to other leaders, on uh, whether it was BP or the Coast Guard. And I think we had some terrific conversations that came out of that. Um, the CR teams uh, did great. We were helping with Intergov. But again, it was one of those moments where, um, you know, you've got to be ready. I one funny piece of it that my team will remember is that we were trying to get space down in this BP center and wanted to be in the room. And instead, we were kind of put in a, a what we kind of jokingly called the meat locker where they kept the computers and it was freezing. <laughs> and, you know, as a lead, you've got to be able to talk to your team to say, 
This is what we've got for the moment. We don't deter from the mission. I know it's 90 degrees outside and a little cold in here, but we're going to push forward. And I think that's um, what all leaders have to, what they do. (laughs) You push forward and you bring your team with you. That's what you got to do. Yeah. So with all these these incidents and disasters that you've been to, surely you have to have some time to decompress or de-stress. What, what do you do in order to decompress? Well, I make sure I bring my CDs with me, my music. Um, what do you listen to? Okay, so I listen to, um, I wrote my little list here because a lot um, of music, but love Bob Marley. Oh, yeah. Uh, Love Queen. Really? Uh, cool. Love um, Stevie Wonder, Prince, Aretha. Oh, yeah. Luther Vandross, Carol King, Michael Jackson, Jill Scott. I cross all. I'm from Minnesota, so <laughs> I, I, I've, I've heard it all come from a good mix. Good old Midwest girl. Yeah. And, um, definitely a Prince fan. Yeah, yeah, definitely mm-hmm. Prince, Minneapolis. Oh, we miss him. But I think you've got to find those things that bring you joy and comfort and take you to your quiet spot um, and help to uh, restore a sense of calm. So, you know, having your music, whatever you like to meditate on, you know, I'm a big fan of meditation Um, and just find your space and, and remove yourself. Massages are great. I always try to find the place, you know, when we get a little time off, you know, all right, who's giving the great massages in this town? Mm And go release some stress and exercise. Um, if it's just walking, you know, keeping uh, the blood flowing, and um, and find a person if you can uh, that who can be a confidant for you, because everybody needs somebody to talk to. That's fact. Well, and uh, along that same lines, when you're in crisis or you have been in need, who who do you turn to, or who who have you turned to, and or who uh, has given you good advice? I've had I've had the pleasure of really working with some great federal coordinating officers, some FCOs that um, just were exemplary leaders that I've looked to and try to build, um, continue to build my skills from. So I've talked to FCOs. I've had reservists that were just outstanding that I just met for the first time, but really displayed a level of maturity and understanding of what the mission was all about that um, I found myself where we could have d- good conversations about how do we advance the team, and that's always um, been helpful. Um, the external affairs team back here at the region, they're always just a phone call away. Um, again, building strong teams are really important because when we're in stress and crisis, um, you need to know that you can talk to somebody and know it's not going to be on Twitter or Facebook the next yeah, day. What a nightmare. <laughs> That's an extreme, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and we come into these close quarters, the joint field office, um, which sometimes can be ripe for rumors and all kinds of stuff. And so you, you've you got to try to find that confidence. You've got to try to talk to somebody and, you know, to release the stress and then get right back in the, the battle rhythm, as we call it. Like you said, you've been in the business a long time now. You've learned a lot, and part of that learning process is making mistakes. You don't become good at your job unless you've made a few mistakes along the way. Mm-hmm. Can you name one or two mistakes that you've made that uh, really taught you something? 
Yeah, I think going back to that, um, Katrina, while I'm, you know, sharing those talking points on the air, I remember getting a phone call afterwards to say, you know, we're not quite ready for that level. Um, let's just hold off. And, you know, got a pretty good stern talk. That was my third event mm. and still kind of probably running from my reporter days on, you know, breaking news. Here's the latest information. But learning that um, when there's a plan and a communication strategy, that it's important to, you know, execute that. And, and you want it to be timely. You want it to be accurate and clear and concise. But it's it's not a bum rush of information because you can overflow the survivor. So I think that was um, probably the one that stood out that helped me to move forward yeah. in a more methodical way um, as I progressed through the various events. I was just going to say, you know, I'm always concerned, you know, being a, a PIO and, and of, of getting the wrong message out. Uh, getting that that right and proper message out is always very important. Yes. And th hearing your story about getting the the stern talking to and so <laughs> forth. What what kind Nobody of? Nobody wants to get the phone call, Rob. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I, so I, I really make make it a point to make sure the the message I'm doing and the information I'm getting out is is correct and accurate. What number one piece of advice would you give an, another PIO? Well, I think you have to kind of think long and hard because you are you do become the face of whatever that operation is is happening and in this world of you know 24 7 and beyond media um you're always going to be on right so you've got to make sure that a the message has been approved one it's not what you think should be said or um what you're feeling it's not about your feelings it's not about um, the emotions that you're bringing it is about uh, a delivery of critical information that's going to support survivors of whatever that incident might be. So one, understand the message. And then put it in a language where people, you know, oftentimes we're writing kind of in this government speak that we live in all the time. But there, you've got to learn how to write it and deliver it in a way in which people feel the compassion and they understand what it is they need to do. Also be prepared to repeat that message, you know, two, three times, maybe at the time that you're talking to the same person, if you're talking to a reporter, making sure that they really understand the essentials of the message. And then you have to guard against getting off message because it's so easy to deliver a message, whether you're in a news conference or at a public meeting, and get pulled in another direction depending on what's happening. So you've got to know your message, what it is you're trying to deliver, and use you know all the skills you have to make sure that you got it across. And then to follow up when necessary. Don't be afraid to follow up, whether it's calling a reporter or getting back to a, a local official to make sure, hey, we want to make sure that your folks are understanding what they need to do so they can get the help that they deserve. Great, great, great advice. Finally, any technology that you personally like to use? Well, I love, I, I do love my iPhone. I love, I think pictures are powerful. And I do use my, my iPhoto, my, I take a lot of pictures and try to incorporate those across the board. And I encourage my teams to as well, whether we're tweeting something or sending something up for Facebook or we're writing a blog. What's the benefit of that? 
uh, images are powerful. It, you know, to, to see the words, it works. But I think it sinks in at a whole nother level when you can actually see what it is that person's talking about. That's the one thing that drew me to broadcast journalism versus print. The power of the image. Sometimes you don't even need to say anything. You just put the image there and people get it and they mm -hmm. understand the urgency and the importance of what you're doing. So I think that's the greatest tool. I think social media is very powerful. All our teams, obviously we use Twitter and Facebook. I think um, Twitter has become critically important, particularly for FEMA for the listening end because it allows us to see where people are, what they're thinking. We can push out a hundred messages, but uh, if it doesn't sink in and people are still talking about something that's inaccurate or not helpful to someone else, then we really haven't done our job. Right. What is one image that stands out in your mind right now? If I were to say, think of an image, what image has made a lasting impact on you? I think um, the, the wildfires of 2008, uh, seeing an entire uh, mobile home park gone. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, Rob, uh, I'm sorry. I think that was the most powerful one for me. Rob, how about you? I, I'm thinking of um, the Joslin tornadoes. I, I, I've seen images of that and seen, like like Kelly said, a whole town just um, desolated, you know, flattened from tornadoes. Mm -hmm. There are two images that come to mind for me instantly. One of them is the firefighters raising the flag over 9-11. Mm. That's a powerful image. Yes one that's significantly older, but I've seen it so many times over the years, and that is from the Vietnam War, that little Vietnamese girl running down the street, mm -hmm. that black and white image, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. after her town has been bombed or attacked or whatever, and she comes running out, she's lost all of her clothes, yeah. she's crying. That's one of those powerful images that just hits me every time I see it. It's because now that I have a daughter, you know, sure. it makes it even more emotional when you see things like that, kids especially being caught up in, in any kind of disaster, mm -hmm. let alone war. Sure. A, a picture but says a, a thousand you know words. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, we, we, and, and unfortunately we saw, you know, we're back with the emergency management images um, with Katrina. I mean, you can't, it's hard to wrap your mind around just seeing rooftops and then just water oh, yeah. surrounding mm -hmm. complete neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. You know, Sandy, the folks who experienced that again. And so, um, yeah, the power of pictures is, is crucial and it's important, I think, to everything that we do. Anything else you want to add, Kelly? Again, I, I, I can't uh, impress enough the importance of the work that we do as public information officers. It's critical, whether it's the intel of information that's coming in through media monitoring or social media and then how we shape and craft our message to the folks that we send out to actually talk to reporters, to deliver those messages, or to stand up in public meetings where we may be ridiculed and yelled at, but having the courage to stand up and talk about you know, what can be life-saving and uh, life-changing uh, programs um, that are gonna help people recover. And in this day where we're seeing nature uh, just turn on her head, oh, yeah. um, We've got to be ready. We've got to be ready with our words. There, there are 16 disasters or incidents listed there on your list that you've been to. And you've been here at FEMA Region 9 for 12 years. Yes. 
So that averages, you know, one um, disaster incident a year to maybe two. What do you do during the all that other time? What are you doing? Oh, here in the region, I um, manage their speakers bureau, which is very robust. So it's very, compared to the field work, it's a little less stressful. <laughs> uh, you're still dealing uh, with people, which is important to keep the people skills going and the communication and the coordination. Speakers Bureau, uh, finding the right speakers, making all those connections. We do trainings. We train our counterparts in the region. Um, and then also, um, I have a, 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 the great honor of being part of our radiological emergency preparedness uh, team. So having experience in running JICs, Joint Information Centers, um, I joined their team maybe three years ago in evaluating JIC operations um, that stand up around emergent, uh, uh, power plants, right? Um, so I became an evaluator through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission a few years ago so that I can use these same skills and bring them to bear and observe to see how other operations run and, and provide insight on their operations. So Very important. Still stay busy. Still yeah, stay busy. Do. Just a different Sounds type. Like and then you get to go to the gym more often and <laughs> exercise. And That's always a good thing. Yeah, and, and build it up and be ready for the next, uh, ready. the next phone call. Be in fighting condition. Yes. Right. Sounds good. Exactly. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kelly Hudson, external <laughs> affairs officer here at FEMA Region 9. We really thank you for taking this hour to talk with us and uh, share your insights and your experience and expertise, shedding a little light. I learned a lot. I'm about you, Rob. You had to learn I, something here I learned here today. quite a bit here. And so, yeah. You know, well, I'm I hope. Very appreciative. For this has been a lot of fun and a great pleasure. Uh, it's really a pleasure to work with you guys. And uh, I thank you very much. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. And a big thanks again to Kelly Hudson. Coming up in the next episode, we'll focus on the California State Threat Assessment Center, a.k.a. the STAC. What threats, you may be wondering? And just how do we put our finger on the pulse of the security of California? Thanks for listening. I'm Sean Boyd. Take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.